Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about your money and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor. And I'm James Max, broadcaster and FT Money columnist. We have dedicated this podcast to talking about rich people's problems. That's the name of James Max's monthly column, his tongue-in-cheek tales of titanium credit cards, broken down Aston Martins and lost drones have generated a huge response from readers. But this week, he's written about a much more sombre subject, being fired. Joining us a little later on on the line, we'll be hearing from Merrin Somerset-Webb with her views on last week's budget and the warning signs she thinks it contains for property investors. And throughout the podcast, we will be reading out and responding to a stack of emails and comments that you've been sending in for James and challenging him to come up with some solutions to your rich people's problems. If you want to send an email to James, you can get him on richpeoplesproblems at ft.com. Let's kick off with being fired. Now, James, not everybody knows that your rise to fame was predicated by being on the first ever series of The Apprentice, where you were fired by none other than Lord Sugar. Except I was never fired. But on the television, and maybe this is the first lesson, that we all have a perception as to what happened. So in our lives, and if you are unlucky enough to be fired, there's always two stories. So there's the one story as to what they or your employer wants to say, and then there's what actually happened. So in The Apprentice, so it was filmed in 2004, it was then aired in 2005. So there were six months. So in my mind, I knew what had happened. And what had happened is I'd come third, and Lord Sugar had said, look, you've done really well, you're not for me, so I'm going to let you go if... Whoever it is wants to edit in, you're fired, then let them do so. So he didn't actually point the finger at you in the boardroom and say, you're fired. No, he didn't. Oh, and the thing is... What a letdown. Well, yes, but then I received just a week before it was being aired. So I thought, you know, I'd got the way through the whole series. I'd sort of come away from it. I'd watched it. It was quite entertaining. And I thought, my goodness me, I, I took a risk to do this. But I'm unscathed. I think I can hold my head up high. And then I got a call from the uh, producer. And he said changed a few things in the edit. Now, this was before Queengate. You might remember the scandal when the Queen was filmed walking one way and then she was uh, edited walking another and it made her look as if she was cross or angry. And it shows the power of the edit. What you see on the TV happened. So what you saw in that first series of The Apprentice was me getting fired and also coming forth. <gasps> I know. So you might say, well, does it really matter? 
No, it doesn't really. But on the other hand, I, I think it demonstrates that there's always two sides of a story to tell and your employer will want to make themselves look as if they're marvellous and they're great and they did everything right and they let you go or you wanted to go and do some other things or whatever it was. And that's a nonsense the reality is sometimes it's personality, sometimes it's that your face doesn't fit, sometimes that they just don't like you or you're, they don't think you can do the job, whatever it is. And you then have to decide psychologically. This is the psychological battle that you will face. You have to decide how you're going to deal with it. Well, you speak in your column about being a good lever, um, yes. which is an expression I hadn't heard before. Tell us about that. So being a good lever is particularly when you have been given elements of a deal or deals or a fund and you leave, but you're still entitled to the benefits of that fund. So if you work in private equity, for example, and you do a deal, you get points or pieces of that deal, and that deal may still have a few years to run before it's monetized, And you can leave the firm, but take your interest in that deal with you, if you like, if you are what's considered as a good lever. So if you go and work for a competitor within the timescale, if you reveal information about any aspect of the firm, which has probably been detailed in your compromise agreement, then you will lose your right to that money. So it's really important to be a good lever. So, for example, people say to me, why did you go on The Apprentice? Well, I didn't want to do the next fund for the private equity firm that we were working with. I had an interest in the first fund. And if I'm a good lever, I can take that money with me. And it was quite a lot of money, six or seven figures. And if I'm a bad lever, I lose the lot. So guess what? Taking part in the TV show, having a bit of a laugh. Hello, ka-ching. Bought me a house. Well, very nice. And readers can read more about that in your column in FT Money this weekend. But finally, before we move on to some of the responses to last week's column, you also talk about how the experience of being fired or being let go from subsequent jobs has actually been an epiphany for you. People shouldn't fear getting the chop necessarily. I think you're right. And and this is what I was trying to talk about, because I think in the past there was a massive stigma from losing your job. Because as soon as you've lost a job, it's a, it is a little bit like a bereavement. Well, it's like losing your identity. It It is, because people, if they don't know you that well, or even if they do, they say, oh, how's things? And you go through the family, or they may ask you about your job before they ask you about your family. So it is part of you. And if you no longer have that to talk about, psychologically, every time you have to explain, the first time it's fine, but after 10, 15, 20 people, or when the news is made public, and particularly if you're well-known in your sector... Everybody rings. Suddenly, friends that you haven't heard of, friends, oh, what happened, blah, blah, blah. And by the time you've gone through this experience time and time again, it hurts, actually, because you it is a piece of you. And it's almost that it is an inadequacy of you that you are no longer in that place of employment. Unless, of course, you've left immediately to go and do something else or it's been your choice. But say, for example, I was doing the radio. I'd been at uh, LBC Radio for seven and a half years. One of the best jobs I've ever had. Loved it. Audience figures were great. Really enjoyed it. The management team seemed happy with me. But then they said to me, we're not going to renew your contract. And it took a little while to sink in. But as you can imagine, even four years later, I get into cabs and they go, oh, you was that bloke on the radio. Oh, love that show. What happened? Got fired. So, you know, and still it's it's like, oh, it hurts. I mean, you know, I'm doing other things. I'm with Talk Radio, fantastic radio station. I love it there. But I didn't choose to leave. And I think that is the point that you are going to have to get through the psychological barriers of you didn't make that choice. But all I would say to you is 
don't worry about it. You have skills. Think about those skills and how you can use those to go and get something better, greater, prove yourself, prove everybody else wrong and just enjoy it. And also, if you get a big dollop of cash, don't worry. Enjoy yourself. Do things that you've never thought of doing before and you will have a great time. A great solution there to your latest rich people's problems, which you can read online now. A bit more serious. FT.com slash money. You're in the FT money section in this weekend's newspaper. But let's briefly talk about your rich people's money problems from two weeks ago, which was all about the tricky subject of Christmas gifting. Not many shopping days left now, of course, but there was a terrific reader response to this. There was one of the comments from somebody called Brymane, who said, that's five minutes of my life I'm not getting back. I thought that was a little bit harsh, <laughs> because I thought that the advice was pretty good, but if, if it doesn't help you, then so be it and, and go away. Well, and the, another com- comment from JPM says, I only invite friends round when I judge the NPV of the evening, which I assume he means net present value, taking into account the gift received and the cost of dinner capital is large and positive maybe that's why i don't have any friends yeah, we thoroughly enjoyed that one this one says um who's this from oh at donald trump wow an article designed to foment revolution the ft published a banal piece of tat on the same subject at the same time last year if your friends might drop you from bringing wine uh with a, a screw top then drop them and get a real life but thing is unless it's hiller grace or something and you come round to my house with a screw top bottle of wine forget it goodbye well lots of readers commenting on the fact that they quite like ferrero rocher i also joined in that comment thread and admitted that my husband has got quite a penchant for matchmakers now you see look i understand and everybody has said to me oh we're going to bring you ferrero rocher that's fine because i will now have enough to have an ambassador's party (laughs) an ambassador's party is great and i'm very happy with it but if you think that just one solitary little box of 12 of them or whatever it is 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 a, a useful or a realistic present to take unless it's ironic and you are planning for an ambassador's party forget it what is on earth is your guest going to think of you and and finally on the guest subject um you also mentioned in the column that you thought if you had guest rounds at christmas they should strip the beds before they left and one reader comments if you want to come and stay with me there's no use to bring a gift unless you want to bring a bottle or a few flowers lovely but when you leave please don't strip the bed i can't understand this it's literally a two-second job and i'd rather have the place looking tidy if i can't get the washing done straight away Well, quite frankly, you need to get some staff because I do not like to have dirty sheets on my bed and I I do like to have them stripped because then it means that I can take them straight to the dry cleaners. Oh, you're so posh. Well, we've also been asking readers to email in with their own rich people's problems to solve. And before we speak to Merrin, who's just on the line, we'll be answering this question. It won't have escaped your notice, James, that there's a bit of a royal wedding going on next May. Oh, yes. We've had had a great question from Graham Pack, who says, what wedding present do you buy for a prince and his future wife who have everything and already very wealthy, assuming um, Graham has got an invite um, to the big day? Have a think about that while we join Merrin to catch up on her views about the budget. So joining me on the line now from Edinburgh is Merrin Somerset Webb. Welcome, Merrin. So your column this week, more maths for everyone, especially Mm. by select landlords, was Mm. your big response to the budget, which and we're talking about rich people's problems today. I mean, they've got 99 problems, but the budget certainly wasn't one. Um, there was really very, very little in it to concern people in terms of the top line measures, tax changes. What's that? 
Yeah, no, that was interesting. There was there was nothing in there that on the face of it should really concern the wealthy. You know, there was nothing on changes to pension tax relief, for example, which is something that we expect every single budget because it seems such an easy way for the state to claw in a bit more cash. Nothing on the tax changes for, for on income tax levels, um, capital gains tax, etc. All state fairly static for most people. So I think the well-off are probably breathing a, a sigh of relief after this one. But of course, as ever, some of them are going to get caught in traps that they didn't see immediately. And that's what my column was about this week. You know, one of the interesting things in the column was this focus on maths. There's going to be more maths for everyone, said Philip Hammond. And he was focusing very much on on schools. And another time, by the way, I'd love to talk about this lack of focus on adult numeracy. You know, after this Mm. column, lots of people sent me statistics on this. And there are some 20 million working people in the UK with numeracy below that of GCSE level, which makes it verging on impossible to work in any kind of mid-level job. And that may be one part of our productivity problem. Absolutely. And and also explains the extent of, you know, mis-selling and the financial sector that's gone on over the years. Absolutely. Absolutely, I mean, it's all very well focusing on children, but you know, the people who are suffering at the moment from lack of numeracy are people who are, are adult and working. And one particular group sent me stats from the NHS showing that they did some some quick test surveys of NHS staff and found that over seventy percent, seventy percent of the staff that they surveyed did not have um, what we would consider to be adult numeracy levels. Now this is shocking stuff. Anyway, uh, that's not for today because today the budget looked at numeracy for children, but I would really hope in light of what I've learnt since this budget came out that Mm. later the Chancellor can come back to putting a whole pile of money into numeracy schemes for adults. Now the maths that you did specifically relating to the budget speech was looking at the kind of smoke signals I suppose that we can infer from the numbers for those owning property, second homes, buy to let landlords. Absolutely. Now, one of the things in here, well, we, we know that there have been all sorts of things brought in for buy-to-let landlords over the last few years, from the changes to tax relief to um, the additional 3% second home surcharge when you when you buy a second home, etc. But one of the things that came out in this was changes to the way you will pay capital gains or effectively pay capital gains if you have a buy-to-let inside a company structure, which, of course, is something that huge numbers of landlords mm. have done since the changes to tax relief were brought in. So you have transfer it into a company and then you avoid all this business of not being able to um, claim relief against the interest on your mortgage etc. Now in the past if you've done this assets that you've held inside a company and houses obviously included in this have been eligible for indexation so your gains are adjusted for inflation before they are taxed. Now that's not the case elsewhere in the tax system so um, HMRC are to bring in new rules whereby this indexation will disappear so that you will pay effectively corporation tax not capital gains tax but it's roughly the same same kind of uh, level on a non-index basis. Now, that makes a big difference or will make a big difference if prices keep going up uh, to the long-term returns that landlords will see from, from their properties. So, you know, I think that's one interesting thing in there. It doesn't matter where you turn as a buy-to-let landlord at the moment. The state is coming after you. And the signal could not be more clear. It could not be more clear. What the state is saying to you is, we don't want you to be doing this. We don't want you to be doing this. Stop doing it. Do something else with your cash instead. And it it amazes me that there are still so many people who are not listening because you cannot fight the state when the state has has an end in mind, in this case, getting small buy-to-let investors out of the business. So the other big headline measure from the budget, of course, was stamp duty, which is going to be cut now for first-time buyers. They could save up to £5,000 buying a new property. Sounds Mm -hmm. good, but you don't think it's all that. 
Well, I do. I will say there is one. There was one upside here, which is that it does give the first-time buyer a proper advantage for the first time over the buy-to-let investor. So, the example I used in my column was, let's say there's a, a property on the market for three hundred thousand pounds. Who pays what? The first-time buyer actually pays three hundred thousand pounds. He's got no stamp duty to pay, and he doesn't pay, doesn't pay surcharge, etc. The buy-to-let investor pays three hundred and fourteen thousand pounds because he's paying normal stamp duty, stamp duty, and he's paying the surcharge. So that's suddenly quite a big difference in price between the first-time buyer and the buy-to-let investor. However, what we do know, looking at the way these things have worked in the past, is that if you cut the price for the first-time buyer in this way, the price goes up because the price of a property is, in the end, what somebody can afford to pay. And if they could have afforded to pay 305000 that is what the price will go up to, regardless of stamp duty. It might, it might not go all the way up to the extent of the stamp duty that has been left out because there are other players in here, buy-to-let investors, second-time buyers, etc. But nonetheless, we can expect the price of a property for a first-time buyer to go up now as a result of the stamp duty being removed. So, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a carapisa, and there are lots of, of better ways, I would have thought, to help out the first-time buyer. Uh, you know, my views on this, the way we can really help the first-time buyer is to make houses cheaper. <laughs> and the way to do that is to normalize interest rates, get rid of help to buy, stop financializing the whole system, etc. But the government is clearly not interested in any of those solutions. They will prefer solutions that bump up house prices. I was uh, fascinated, Merrin, not only that uh, the policy about uh, stamp duty was lifted almost word for word from Ed Miliband, and indeed that was sort of roundly criticised when he brought out the idea, and then, of course, now it's hailed as this great, wonderful thing. Yeah. Do you think that there are unintended consequences that arise not only from this, but also the government's intervention into the real estate market? Because they've now got so many different levels of tax and so many mm-hmm. different loopholes and areas that now mean that prices, depending on who you are, are different. And the cash buyers, they're never going to accept less than they paid for it unless they're in a state of distress, which then builds in even more inflation into house price growth. No, absolutely. I mean, every every time you intervene in a market, you mess up that market. And everything that the state has been doing in the housing market for the last 10, 15 years has been to attempt to counter a misjudged policy in the first place. So if you consider the financialization of, of houses, the, um, the very low interest we've seen, QE that drives up asset prices across the board, these things drive up prices, and that causes discontent, intergenerational inequality, all these things we talk about all the time. And the state then feels obliged to intervene again to try and alleviate these problems. And in doing so, they just create more and more distortions. And so we end up in a, in a cycle of bad policy followed by bad policy followed by bad policy. And of course, a cycle of complication. And every cycle of complication brings us loopholes and brings us gainers and brings us losers. So, you know, there is, there is nothing good going on here. We have a bad situation that is being exacerbated by a, a, a myriad group of, of bad policies. Just one other question, if I may, which is kind of at the other end of the spectrum and may not necessarily at first glance um, have an impact, if you like, on the on the real estate market. But they're looking at changing the tax at the top level for overseas investors. Mm. So they've got a consultation out. And as you say, all the smoke signals are there. Do you think there is an impact of curtailing because it's good for the headlines, but curtailing overseas investment into particularly development? Mm, well, I do think there is a case for it. You know, pretty much everywhere else in the, in the world does this. It's very unusual to have a real estate market that is completely open to foreign investment in the way that, that we have had. And, uh, you know, there is there is 
upside to us reputationally and having uh, um, cities that people can put money into and, and you know into a safe legal system and a safe political structure, etc. But over over the long term, that has distorted our market as well. So I, I mean, I think there there are grounds for intervening here, grounds for uh, you know holding off for an investment into property in the UK. But again, it creates more different classes of investor, more different types more complication and in the end more loopholes so uh, it's a difficult question a difficult question in, in an ideal world I would just simplify everything everything take away stamp duty put in clear capital capital gains taxes on every kind of property for every person in the same way make life simple well thanks very much there to Merrin Somerset Webb if you didn't catch her column in the paper last week you can read it online now at ft.com slash money and catch her in the comments section of the FT Weekend newspaper this week Now, we've been asking readers to send in their own rich people's problems for James Max to have a go at solving, and we've had a really great response. Just before we spoke to Merrin, I mentioned we had a royal wedding-themed request from uh, one of our more noble readers, Graham Pack. He says, what wedding present do you buy for a prince and his future wife who have everything and are already very wealthy? over to you. Well, the first point I would say is, Graham, unless you're going to the wedding, it's really tacky to buy presents for people. People send loads of stuff. They'll, I mean, for example, the raw baby and all that sort of business that's on the way, the other couple, apparently they get loads and loads of gifts. People send them teddy bears and all this sort of stuff. It's like, stop it. What's wrong with you? But if you are going, then you're going to have to be very creative. And I would suggest that you either go very vintage or very individual, very limited edition. I mean, for example, there'll probably be some very limited edition Harry and Meghan plates, which you could take. I mean, that would be hilarious. Uh, That's a good jokey gift. Alternatively, you could be even more creative and you know where they live. There's lots of stuff from history about the buildings in which they live. You could go to a cartographer, you could get an old map, you could do all sorts of things. Where they met. Where they Mm -hmm. met, exactly. I mean, so uh, off to uh, Rwanda or wherever it was. I think it was Rwanda. You, You could go over there and find some sort of history or natural wildlife photography of that part of the world, particularly if it's black and white, is incredible. A really big coffee table book of that, I think they'd like Okay, well, that's not a bad suggestion. Let's move on to um, to, to another one now. Um, in response to your tweet, says um, a reader called Ashley, I have a £2 million windfall from the sale of shares, and being in my early 50s, I've decided it's time to have some fun. Well, yes, that, that definitely. That really have sums up the, the ethos of your column. I've always fancied a motor yacht, but appreciate they can cost a lot to maintain, and I would probably need a skipper to take it out. I actually know somebody who's retired and does that for their job. Should I go for the boat or buy a property instead? I would not be especially keen to rent the property or charter the yacht, but I would be happy for my friends to enjoy it. Best wishes, Ashley. I don't want to be rude, but I don't think two million quid is enough to get a decent boat. So because you've got to think about running it. And uh, most people say that the day that you want to sell a boat is the day after you bought it. They're a nightmare. (laughs) They're a nightmare, unless you've got oodles and stacks of cash that you can have the crew, you can have it looked after, you can have... It's non-stop hassle. If you think that a dog or a cat is hassle, or children are hassles, they are, if you think that they are, then that is nothing compared with a boat. Now, would I suggest that you buy a property and then buy yourself a little, you know, boat to have around in the harbour that, you know, 10, 20, 30 grand's worth of boat that you can then, you know, stick a few skis off the back and you can sort of pop off for lunch or do that? Yes. Great. Do that. 
do not go down the whole boat route. It's just a nightmare. You'll just create more problems for yourself and you'll probably have a lot more fun having a property with a nice pool and then keeping some cash and then spending it on, you know, bringing your friends because that's the other thing. Or even spending it on, on hiring a, a charter. So the, the next email, hello, James, is from oh, hi. Um, a chap called Doge Singh. He says, if I am rich, I can buy my son a Ferrari for his birthday, give it to him, no questions asked, no tax issues, nothing. But I'm not rich. So I can't buy him a house for his birthday without jumping through 116 hoops from 12 different authorities with each one of them expecting payment. How can this be? I think what we're dealing with here is that because of the rise in house prices, things that were seemingly super expensive and out of reach are actually within reach compared to housing which has now become out of reach. What I would suggest, though, is that, first of all, you shouldn't be buying anybody a Ferrari. You probably shouldn't even be having one. They're a bit flash and a bit naff. But setting that aside, think of the money that a Ferrari would cost. And if it's a new one, it might be 80, might be 100, might be 120, might be 150,000 pounds. That money will get your child a deposit. That could possibly be the finest or best present you could ever get. And if you do want to get them a car, you could use a little bit less from the deposit and go and find a fantastic second-hand motor car for 10 grand, like a Triumph Stag, something like that, which would be a lot more fun. And they will thank you for helping them get on the housing ladder, but give the responsibility to them. And then the car... Don't buy them a Ferrari. It's naff for you. It's an embarrassment for them. It's it's a, a horrible thing. OK, well, our final um, problem, which has been sent in by a reader, um, is about your favourite subject, classic cars. Of course, you wrote about your broken-down Bentley um, a couple of months no, uh, ago. Excuse me. <laughs> the Bentley is fine. It's the Aston that's in trouble. <laughs> I beg your pardon. Your broken-down Aston Martin. Um, He's still, still haven't got it back. <laughs> He's still languishing in a garage somewhere. Poor thing. So we had a lovely email from Mark. It was a fuse. A fuse (laughs) broke. That's what happened. Well, we had, before you blow your fuse, we had a lovely email from Mark Peeker, who says, um, Dear James, it matters not when they break down, for they do reward you with love and a ridiculous smile upon one's face when they work. In Hong Kong, my 1990 Bentley still draws admiring glances, and I notice hotels will leave her right by the entrance, the flashy Lamborghini and McLarens having been sent to the underground car park. I admit, however... At the end of each journey, I do tap the dashboard and thank her for not breaking down. And I know she is listening. Isn't that lovely? She is listening. And because there is that element of just hoping they're not going to break down. I think that if you are going to have some kind of classic car or otherwise, you'll enjoy it. And you'll enjoy it even more because there is a risk. There's a risk that they may or may not achieve what you want them to achieve. But I think what we've learned from all of this is that we're very keen to have more correspondence from you, more questions from you. We enjoy the comments, good, bad, abusive, as as long as it's reasonable language and we don't have to remove them, or libelous. But we really enjoy those and we'd thoroughly like to use those. So please do make sure that you comment on the, on the website and all that sort of thing. And you can send... A, brings out bristles because there's no apostrophe. But you can send emails, richpeoplesproblems at ft.com richpeoplesproblems at ft.com send us your comments your questions we'll try and answer them as best we can and we will have james max back on the ft money podcast at a date soon to be announced in the meantime that's it from the money show this week we'll be back at the usual time next thursday if you've got a question that you want to put to our panel of money experts or get in touch with us you can email us at money 
at ft.com or read all of the articles that we've got published on our website now online at ft.com slash money. Goodbye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.